0: Okay, let's turn for our New Testament reading to Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We're going to start with chapter 2, verse 10, last verse of chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Some people who who aren't very familiar with the Bible um, may tend to imagine sometimes that the Bible is a book that's mainly about kind of holy men, um, kind of super spiritual heroes of the faith, setting an example uh, for the rest of us, so we can try to aspire to be like them, to achieve great spiritual things like they did, and sometimes, unfortunately, um, Christians teach the Bible that way, uh, more or less explicitly. Sometimes it's the way it's implied. We just preach, be like these people. Uh, of course, when you, when you actually read the Bible, you find that things are quite different from that. Um, what the Bible is actually filled with is the histories of very weak people, um, not heroes, not super spiritual, not you know, high achievers when it comes to the law of God. And very often, pictures these people coming under the convicting power of the word of God. And experiencing the supernatural power of God, reaching in and wrenching them out of their sin. Offering them a a way out, a way of rescue, a way of forgiveness. Changing them. Sinners saved by grace. That is the kind of person the Bible is mainly about. Those are the kinds of people that the Bible is also for. The kinds of people who can uh, sing from their hearts about themselves, those words, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Or, Another one says, the the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus forgiveness receives. And in fact, when you read the Bible, it it seems that time after time, the Lord really even goes out of his way um, to select the worst, the most depraved, the farthest off, the most far gone. So that seeing those uh, triumphs of his grace, as another hymn says, we might have a reassurance that, yes, I too can be forgiven. That, yes, there is hope for me too, that Jesus loves even me. I have three pretty simple points for this morning. There's three words that are going to help us Kind of trace the story arc here of chapter 3 of Jonah. And they are wrath, repentance, and relenting. Wrath, repentance, and relenting. Um, And actually, before those themes play out in Nineveh, it's very important to remember that they have all three already played out in Jonah's own life. In chapter 1, it is Jonah who has come under the judgment of God. Um, in chapter 2, it is Jonah who is turning to God, calling out of his distress. And in verse 10, where we begin tonight, of chapter two, uh, this morning in chapter 2, it is the, it is the Lord who brings Jonah uh, securely out of the judgment waters and deposits him safe and sound on the dry land. Uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, is, um, we could say, the the completion. It's the completion of Jonah's salvation, which begins, of course, when the great fish swallows him. And um, when you think about that swallowing by the great fish, you could almost say that's kind of like an already-not-yet rescue, right? Being swallowed by the fish, that is the means that God had prepared to rescue Jonah from drowning. So that is a form of salvation, but, of course, it's also a picture of the grave. He calls from the belly of the fish... And he describes that as being in the belly of Sheol, the belly of the grave. And, and so there's this sort of double significance of this fish. Once he has been rescued from drowning, the question arises, well, who's going to rescue him from the belly of the fish? How is that going to happen? There's a double salvation that Jonah experiences. Um, verse 10 kind of completes that story arc then. Um, when it says the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Like we said last time, after that salvation by being swallowed comes the rescue by regurgitation. Uh, Again, it's not very dignified. It's not very uh, triumphant, right? It's a very humbling way of getting rescued from the sea. This does not exalt Jonah as a hero of the faith. Jonah is not the hero of this story. What this story does is it exalts the saving power of the Lord. You can imagine though the, the, the relief, the kind of euphoria of Jonah of feeling <laughs> running through his fingers, the, the sand on the shore when he finally makes it there, maybe kind of kissing the ground. Imagine like uh, sailors uh, washed up on the shore after a storm, shipwreck. Only ten times over after spending those three days in the ship, in the fish's uh, belly. But uh, you can also think how kind of woebegone Jonah must have looked at this point after that whole ordeal the state of his clothes and his hair, his skin. He would have been a pretty frightful, wild, pitiful figure uh, coming up off the beach there. Jonah the great sinner, who's been saved, though, by the even greater grace of God, grace that is greater than all of his sin. And so then, the story turns a corner again at the beginning of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So when a child um, disobeys their parents, um, you tell them to do something, for whatever reason, they just don't do it. When that happens, um, a couple of things are important. Discipline is important. So they need to know that that's not okay. They need to know there are consequences for disobeying. Uh, But follow-through is also important. Usually after the discipline, it's important to go back and give that child the same instructions again and to see to it that this time, they do obey. And they may need, they may need some help. Maybe you do it along with them. You do it together. Uh, but in, in general, there's always exceptions, but in general, a wise parent doesn't just drop it with the discipline, after the discipline. Uh, in fact, it could be that the kid would frankly rather get discipline than do the job. <laughs> and so... Um, uh, so to them, it might seem like a good trade-off, but of course, that's not the place to leave things. And why is that? Why is that? Well, the reason is that the goal is not just to punish them. The goal is to train their character. And to train their character, we need to give them the opportunity, this time, this time to humble their hearts, this time to listen, this time to be willing to give up their stubborn, selfish desires, and live for something more than just themselves. This is one of the great differences between punishment and true discipline. Because punishment merely punishes and, and well, maybe it, it deters um, externally, but discipline trains inwardly. It's constructive. And it results in a stronger character being formed um, more and more in a better direction. And at this point, you might have expected the Lord just to send Jonah home in disgrace. Pure punishment. Jonah, you had your chance for this mission, and you blew it, and so um, you didn't choose to accept it, and so you're off the case, Jonah. Hand me your badge and your gun. You're off the force. But that's not what the Lord does. The Lord gives Jonah now the opportunity yet again, this time to obey the commission, to fulfill his mission. And this time, happy to say, Jonah does go. He goes to Nineveh. Now Jonah's troubles, Jonah's sinful responses are not over. We'll see that in the end, but that's for next time. Uh, Let's think, for now, about Nineveh and the way they respond to Jonah's message. So Nineveh, you remember, was the capital of the great Assyrian Empire. Later, that would be the empire that would become responsible for the utter destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, And at that point, Assyria was very much on the ascent, the great uh, powerhouse of its day in the ancient Near East. Interestingly, though, uh, that would come some decades after Jonah's life. And historians note, as I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that in the time of Jonah, the Assyrian civilization was actually going through a time of, of weakness, of instability internally, of disorder. It was not at this point in history operating as that kind of far-flung imperial powerhouse uh, projecting Assyrian power relentlessly uh, around the ancient Near Eastern world. It had been in the past It would be in the near future under new leadership that was going to consolidate things and and restore that Assyrian glory, but not in Jonah's day. This was a dark kind of in-between time uh, for the Assyrians. Uh, Still, though, even when the leaves fall off a tree in the autumn, the sap is still strong in the trunk, still the capital city, Nineveh, was nonetheless a huge and powerful city an exceedingly great city. Uh, Literally, that's uh, in Hebrew, a great city to God. Um, It also says that the city was three days' journey. And actually, the footnote in the ESV, I think, is helpful here. Um, Rather than three days' journey in breadth, which you find in the text, the footnote suggests it might also mean a visit was three days' journey. Um, And I think that's probably better. Uh, Literally, the Hebrew just says, a great city to God, a journey of three days. That's how it literally reads. And so there's, there's some debate about what exactly that's trying to get across to us about Nineveh. I actually do not think that it means it would take three days to walk from one side of the city to the other. That's often how it's explained. Um, it might mean uh, that you'd need three days to kind of take it all in, to see everything there was to see. Uh, maybe another person suggests you'd need three days to go there, uh, to, to go there to do what you came to do and then to travel home. Because of the kind of surrounding suburban, uh, not suburbs like we think of them, but the, the surrounding region and uh, where people would be coming from to do their business in the capital city. Uh, so however you slice it, though, the basic meaning is clear. There, there's no ambiguity about what, we're, what's being, um, what, what the uh, historian is trying to get across from, to us about this city. That it is a very great city. A big, important city filled with thousands and thousands of people who together are about to hear this great message of judgment that is looming over them all. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. You may be familiar with the scene as it opens where you first meet Christian. With his book in his hand and a great burden upon his back, he's reading the book, he's weeping and trembling and saying, what shall I do? Because the book tells him that his hometown, the city of destruction, is going to be annihilated. and He does not know how to escape that certain impending judgment on his city. So eventually he meets a man named Evangelist who asks him why he's so distressed. And he answers, Sir, I read in the book in my hand that I am condemned to die. And after that, to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, to die. Nor able to do the second, to come to judgment before God. And in response, Evangelist hands to Christian a parchment roll. And there was written within, flee, flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath to come is God's message for sinners. As the message implied in Jonah's proclamation of judgment against Nineveh. It's often been said, um, though sadly not often enough, I think, that uh, the good news, to understand it properly, has to be preceded by what we could call the bad news. The good news, the gospel, only makes sense if we understand first the bad news, that free forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Jesus. Um, We don't see the need for it unless we understand why um, that message is so necessary. If we don't understand the depth of our peril under the wrath of God, due to his just and righteous condemnation of our sin, as the great lawgiver, as the great judge of all the earth, when we have every one of us offended against, broken his law, and find ourselves from birth under his wrath and curse. Now, some people might mistakenly think, well, that's just the Old Testament God. Uh, Sure, God talks a lot about wrath and Judgment in the Old Testament, but then you get to the New Testament and you find that God's a God of love, right? Um, but that's not—that simply is not borne out even by just a cursory reading of the New Testament. Again, when you actually read what it says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Galatians three ten. Uh, for it is written, and so you see, it's appealing to the Old Testament law and agreeing with it. It is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Through the law, Romans 3.20, comes knowledge of sin. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, Romans 2 says, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. He goes on to say that for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27 It may not be 40 days, it may be 40 years For all you know, it may be 40 minutes when that day may come for you. Yet, some fleeting period of time, and your body will be destroyed and you will stand exposed before the Lord God who made you. What will be your recourse in that day, in that moment, before His? Holy, piercing gaze that sees everything. Even Jesus himself. Jesus himself teaches more about hell than any other person in the Bible. The fact is that God simply doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the same God and the same fundamental message. In every stage of his plan, He is God, he is righteous, he is the lawgiver, he is the judge, he is the holy, holy, holy God who cannot excuse or overlook sin and evil. That is the bad news that always must come before the good news, if the good news is to make any sense. And that bad news for the world generally, and for sinners today, Jonah brings to bear in a special way, against the city of Nineveh by the commission of God, when he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. One of the most remarkable things about this book, greater miracle, I think, even than the rescue of Jonah by being swallowed by a fish, is the instant, extreme unvarnished, self-effacing, public repentance of the city of Nineveh in response to the preaching of Jonah. And the people of Nineveh believed God, something that could have only taken place in a city like that by the power of God. The Holy Spirit is working in this city along with the word of God being proclaimed by his prophet And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Note here the close connection between faith and repentance. This is important. I've I've often described faith and repentance to you as two sides of the same coin. And that's really what they are. Repentance is turning away from sin and faith is turning to God. It's, It's one fluid motion, kind of. You can't do one without the other. To do one necessarily means that you're doing the other. So why did the people publicly repent? Well, it's because they believed God. They believed his message through Jonah, and so they turned from their sin and to him. Now, Jonah's prophecy reaches even the the highest uh, seat of power in this great city, Uh, the king himself. And the king, this is very striking, he gets off his throne. He gets off his throne. You can imagine the significance of that gesture, that body language. A king leaving his throne to bow in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, sackcloth and ashes being these cultur- cultural signs of great humiliation and sorrow. So, what you would do when you were mourning, when you were uh, grieving. And he gives a command that all through the city, the people and the animals should all join in this fast, Um, this public way of humbling themselves before God. This is not, though, a merely outward show of repentance. Maybe if we just uh, kind of afflict ourselves and do something painful and dramatically external, then maybe God will forgive us. No, it's more than something merely external. He says also, let everyone actually turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about two different kinds of grief. Or, or two different kinds of sorrow over sin. Uh, one of them Paul calls worldly grief. And that's the, the very kind of spiritually empty sadness or regret about sin uh, that, that does not lead to any kind of real change. It's the kind of sorrow that you have when you're, you're sorry that you got caught, that kind of thing. Right? On the other hand, Paul also talks in that chapter about godly grief. For godly grief, he says, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Uh, When we teach our young kids the first catechism, we have to ask them the question, What does it mean to repent of your sin? I love this because you could teach your kids, say, Well, what do you need to do to be saved? You believe in Jesus and repent of your sin. Of course, they might not know what repentance means, so that's empty. Just to just to rattle that off, we have to ask, what does it mean to repent of our sin? We need to make sure we understand that ourselves. Could you explain to somebody, what does it really mean to repent of your sin? And it gives us um, a, a three-part answer, which I think is really helpful, and not only because it has three points, but here it goes. It says, I must be sorry for my sin and hate and forsake it. What a great summary of what the Bible teaches about repentance. True repentance involves, first of all, real sorrow, sadness, grief that I have offended in such a way against such a good and holy, heavenly Father. I must be sorry, grieving, mourning over my sin. But it's more than just sorrow. The Bible teaches us, Furthermore, to hate our sin. To see it for what it really is. To see it as ugly and repulsive. It is very different from um, giving up a nice thing that we would really rather keep, but we regretfully let it go in this kind of self-sacrificial way for God's sake. That is not repentance. That is not righteousness. No, repentance involves learning to see sin's ugliness, sin's danger. Even when temptation presents it as attractive and safe, to, to see through that, to see it for what it really is and reject it by trained godly instincts that don't want it anymore. It's not just willpower, um, like when you really want to eat the ice cream in the freezer, but you don't. And so you end up feeling a little bit grumpy because you really still want it and a little bit smug because you feel so good about yourself for, about yourself for, for not doing it. No, that's not repentance. That's not what it means really to hate sin. To hate sin is more like when you, you don't eat poison ivy because you, you've, you've learned to see it the way it really is. Not lovable, but hateable. Something to recoil from in horror. How the Holy Spirit is training us. It doesn't come naturally, but that's how He's training us, shaping us, reshaping us to view sin. And then finally, repentance must have that one more component too. And this is the one we really see lived out here in verse 8. We're not just sorry for sin, we don't just hate it, but we actually turn away from it. We actually go in a different direction. Now it's interesting that Jonah's message itself did not include an escape clause. He didn't say, yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown unless you repent. He didn't say that. However, the king and the people of Nineveh seem to understand instinctively something that is always true whenever God's word announces judgment. That is as long as God is still speaking, there is still hope. As long as God is still speaking, there is still hope. There is yet a window of opportunity for those who will listen, who will humble themselves, who will believe that message of judgment and turn not away, but towards the one who is speaking those hard words Do them. Who knows? says the king. Those are words of hope. He doesn't he doesn't presume. He doesn't demand. He's in no position to do either of those things. He realizes he is in no position to barter or negotiate with the Lord. None of those things will result in a reprieve for him or for his people, but you know what might what just might is the character of this God. This God who loves to see sinners come to their senses. This God who sends out his word of judgment precisely for this purpose, to awaken sinners from their stupor, to tear us out of our addiction to our sin, and to give to us that rescue, that redemption that we know that we don't deserve, that we can dare to hope against hope. just might be possible. For us, to, By the free grace of a forgiving God. And that is just what happens to the city of Nineveh. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You see, this is who God is. This is what God Does He is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, quick to forgive, and ready to receive and welcome prodigal sinners. I'm going to think for a minute about the Israelites who had been reading this prophetic book. Uh, sometime after these events took place. Think about the message for Israel reading this book. Israel, perhaps, living under the threat of an Assyrian Empire now again on its ascendancy. This is something Brian Estelle points out, I think is very important. The message for Israel would have been people of God, look at Nineveh, look at what happened when this great and wicked city stopped in their tracks. And, and at least in this moment, at least for this one generation, they listened. They turned from their sin. They believed God's prophet and they were spared. The threatened judgment did not fall. This is important because Israel, too, was receiving warnings Nineveh received just this one prophet. Israel received many prophets, all warning them of the same thing, that unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. Again, that's not just the Old Testament teaching to Israel. In fact, the way I just put it is a direct quote from the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 13. Unless you repent, Jesus says, we will all likewise, perish. That is Jesus' assessment. That's the message of Jesus' whole prophetic ministry. It's repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the way Mark sums it up at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Turn from your sin, Jesus came preaching. Grieve over it, hate it, forsake it, turn from it, and turn to God. That is Jesus' message to sinners. And if you do, If you do, then you also have God's promise. You have God's promise that he will relent from the judgment that you have earned because of your sin, because God has provided a way of salvation, a way of redemption, a way to be forgiven. So yes, the bad news comes first, and it is very bad. But it is still and always the introduction, the first movement giving way for those who repent and believe, to the good news, the best news, that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus' forgiveness receives, and that I, too, can look at the king of Nineveh turning from his sin to God and think, well, then there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away in the blood of Jesus. Our great God, we praise you for your great work of salvation, for the great repentance of Nineveh, and for this great inspired record of it. Lord, we ask that you would use your word to move us to repentance, to see our sin for what it really is, to turn from it to you. Lord, help us not to treat sin as a good thing that we've had to give up, begrudgingly for your sake. Lord, help us to see it for what it really is. And even more importantly, to see your grace for how good it really is. We love you and we entrust ourselves to you, resting in your promises. You have relented from the judgment we deserve because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.